You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you. The gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? So today's guest is Brian Flora. This guy has a huge imagination. He's an art director and concept artist, and he's had a remarkable career over 25 years, and he's done a lot of work on the Looking Glass Wars, so I'm thrilled to have him here because he's done everything from classic matte painting to working on all sorts of cutting-edge technology. Brian has worked on some very big films that you all will recognize, Batman Returns, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Blade Runner 2049, Beowulf, and The Matrix Reloaded. I mean, he's just worked on a lot of big, big movies. He's also done tons of cinematics for video games, and he's worked in theme parks. I'm just delighted to have him here and to chat about the images and his love of storytelling. He's very passionate. It's been a joy to collaborate, and now... We get to hang out and chat about all things Alice. Brian, it's great to have you on the podcast. I've been really excited to reconnect with you. Um, it's been, as you just pointed out, over a decade, which is shocking, but it's been two decades since we were introduced. And I'll just tell the listeners that um, originally the first concept artist that I worked with was Doug Chang. And I had asked him to help me sort out what those card soldiers would look like. 
And the experience was so positive because in the writing of the book, having this image on the wall um, of how the card soldiers uh, were articulated got me really excited about the rest of the world. And so I said to him, hey, do you do, do, you do environments? And he said, no, but I know just the person to wor- you should work with. And uh, it's a colleague of mine, Brian Flora. And I said, uh, great. And so you are the second artist. Um, and because you were so good at capturing the essence of what was in my mind and what I was trying to put on the page, when you did some of those early sketches, they came back and I said, oh, he's in my head. Um, and, and that's when we started to, to, to work together. And, um, and so having... Um, Having a a real strong visceral reaction to you as a person and the conversations that we had about creating this artwork, and then the end result has um, has gotten me really excited to say hi again, to reengage, yeah. and to have this conversation. So welcome. Yeah, it's great. It's great for me also to kind of look back and uh, revisit that time, um, just because it was. Uh, somewhat earlier, well, early in my career, and it was a very creative time for me. Um, it was, uh, I think when we started, it was before I had kids. And so I was still, you know, there's a big change that happens in life where, at least for me, um, you know, before I had kids and had to become responsible, I was always in my head dreaming, and it was just such a good good time to get started on all of that. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's also an interesting point is that our lives have been parallel uh, pretty much in the kid department. I didn't, I didn't have kids either. And uh, writing seemed so much easier back then. I had all day, every day to myself. Um, and once the kids came along, uh, the, those, those 24 hours shrank down to about two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. So uh, <laughs> you probably experienced the same thing. Yeah, well, and, and um, what's funny is, and I, I was just, I mentioned a minute ago before we started recording that I was revisiting the story and I thought, you know, there's the whole part of the story where Alice is in England and she begins to lose her creativity, mm. becomes insecure and mm. in a way becomes a responsible adult, right? And it, it's such a good allegory for creativity, uh, yeah, I like that analogy um, because, um, you know, when people talk about imagination, you know, they often ask, where does it come from? And, you know, things pop into your head. And, and if you're receptive, everything is out, out in the world. It can be part of an imaginative life. Um, but as kids, you know, you're often told to sort of, you know, fit in and, you know, wear your hair this way and dress this way. And when I was a kid, I had a lot of that because my parents wanted a sort of presentation. Um, and and so I wanted to write about that because when you're a kid, you're so imaginative and you go off on these crazy tangents and uh, and we can lose that as an adult. But if you're creative, you, you have to have that. And that's what separates creative people um, as adults uh, and what they do, you know, other folks who do other kinds of jobs. So um, it's, uh, I don't know, did you notice in having kids any sort of imaginative spark come back you, where you were receiving it from them, you know, 
writing, reading stories or having them riff on something? I think it was, for me, it was just, it was observing it secondhand and just watching the the delight uh, that they would experience with, with uh, their kind of naive, but optimistic view of everything. Just like, (laughs) you know, they're, they're just open, right. To whatever, um, whatever they pick up. So I think that was really inspiring. Like I was saying, we have these uh, parallel lives in terms of work, in terms of kids, um, and it's been these two decades. But can you refresh my memory? You were working with Doug. Were you working at ILM or I was actually Image so I Movers? Was, I had worked with Doug on uh, Star Wars Episode One. And then I was working for a time with him a bit, but then also with a company called The Orphanage. And I think that's when uh, I was working on your stuff. So it kind of went through, I think it went through The Orphanage that you hired me. Oh, because, oh, really? Because Scott Stewart, I became friends with Scott Stewart. Yeah. Oh, okay. And The Orphanage at the time was doing advertising or were they doing... Visual, visual effects. effects, all visual yeah. effects. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I ended up having a nice relationship with, um, with Scott because he was aspiring to be a director mm. and he moved down here and they had a production company and we tried to get a movie going at one point. So, okay. The orphanage. Cool. But yeah. you've worked at all these cool places because you worked at, wait, you worked at Image Movers on mm-hmm. a couple of movies on, and you worked at DreamWorks and you've worked at uh, ILM and yeah, I was I was at Atomic Fiction for about three years as their art director. So uh, worked on the Walk, which was the Robert Zemeckis right, movie. Right, 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 right. Uh, oh, that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, was amazing. Was really fun to work on. Um, I love Kev- Kevin Bailey and Ryan Tudhope. You know, the two owners of the company. The company's now gone, uh, but they're still doing very well. So tell me about um, the work that you, what you love to do, because you have concept art, you have matte paintings, Mm -hmm. and you also do visual effect art direction. So how did that all come about? I mean, what was your background that led you to Hollywood and to these jobs and working on these huge movies? So um, I guess when I was in, I'll tell you the whole story. So, uh, in high school, I would go back and forth between art and music. And I actually went to UC Santa Cruz to be a music major. Hmm. And I was going to, you know, I was um, in high school, was singing in a group uh, with a guy named Deke Sharon, who ended up being the musical director for the Pitch Perfect movies. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we were in a quartet together and he kind of <laughs> ran, ran us. And we sang the National Anthem of the Giants game and did just, it was just great fun. I uh, would sing at parties and. So, but then I also had this fascination with artwork and I was a huge Star Wars fan. And so, uh, you know, earlier in high school, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll be an artist. So I went to, I got into UC Santa Cruz and, and, and was in the music program. And then um, there was this weird time, I guess it was freshman year where I just felt like I had a, it was sort of like an awkward first year in college. And I decided, you know, I just need to, focus on something. So I, I thought I'm going to learn to paint like those matte painters. And I just, I literally <laughs> just made it a goal and I just started painting. And, um, 
after about, I guess that summer, I went to a talk on uh, Willow, where, you know, the mm -hmm. Lucasfilm movie. And I walked up and Craig Barron was giving a talk. Um, and he and P Mike Pingrazio owned Matt World Digital. So um, that ended up leading to a first summer job at ILM. I think they were leaving ILM and starting Matt World, but I ended up getting kind of picked up. Uh, I sent him some letters and they ended up at ILM. And then I went and worked there on The Burbs. It was the first movie I had worked on. Wow. And I was kind of like a bucket boy, right? Like cleaning <laughs> brushes and helping with some of the painting. And But it also gave me a chance to see all the full-size matte paintings. And I was just totally blown away by them. So after having that summer experience, I knew what I needed to focus on. I went back to school and I spent another year practicing painting. And then the following summer, I I took time off school and got a job at Matt World doing matte painting. So I had about three years working under Mike Pingrazio. And he's sort of the, he's one of the, I guess in that generation, one of the most well-known matte painters. Mm. Uh, he did the shot at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, okay. Know, he did. He did um, just the most iconic map paintings I can think of, or many of the most. Um, but but wait, wait, wait. So how do you go from, you say to yourself, I, I really want to learn everything there is about art. I, I wish it was that easy. I, I'd, there'd be a lot of languages yeah. I would like to learn. But you must have had some, you know, instinct or some experience. Is that right? As a kid? Yeah, well, yeah. So, um, you know, it's weird. I always... Um, you know, matte painting, of course, is are these realistic paintings that, mm -hmm. that when you step back, they look real, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, even as a little kid, I remember watching a Brady Bunch episode where the dad, who's an architect, had this illustration. And I thought, wow, I bet he has these pens that make it so you can draw like photographs. <laughs> and so for, for whatever reason, I was drawn to this idea of photorealistic painting. Okay. And so it was a, it was certainly a fascination. And I was even as a young kid and I um, like probably eight years old and I would sit there and, and draw quite a bit. Um, so I think I always had this, you know, I would look at these paintings and I was just so drawn to the fact that they were painted, but they looked real. Mm -hmm. And this led to ultimately a love of man. I love photorealism, but ultimately what I learned in my career is it's more about impressionism. Mm -hmm. a little bit less photorealism that mm -hmm. the best work is this this impression and it reads quickly and it tells the story and it does look real but um i would say that the best in a way the best uh realists are are having a, a, uh, an impressionistic ability right because it just sort of it sort of mimics how your eyes um focus on what's important. So a lot of it is like how, how lighting is telling the story. Right. Right. Um, and so I really, I was really drawn to that. So um, I guess when I, when I had this awkward moment in college, I'm just like, I need to focus on something just to get my head out of this, mm. you know, first year. And, um, and yeah, it ended up, it ended up leading to a job, you know, and I ended up, uh, it's a little bittersweet because I kind of gave up music. I realized I needed to focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, to this day, I miss music. Right, um, right. But uh, it was its own kind of, you know, for me, a success story. And then as time went on, um, I'd say, you know, every 
painter has their specialty. And mine ended up being mood and lighting. Lighting. Yeah. And I think um, and my pieces would tend to make you feel like you're someplace that's sort of a story moment, right? Um, and I would draw upon things that I remembered, you know, clouds or um, just atmospheric things that I thought were beautiful and kind of incorporate those in the paintings. Well, well, that's why I loved, loved, loved your work so much because um, you had the light and the mood, but you were able to make what were fantasy worlds feel real as if you could go to that place. And I did a lot of school events and I would often tell people, kids, I said, oh, you know, you can go there. If you want to go to the chessboard desert, you just have to go down the 405. And when you hit the 101, <laughs> go right. And then there's a street over. And they're like, what, what? I go, yeah, it's a real place. Um, and the, the the artwork, you know, it, 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 it draws you in from that standpoint. It doesn't, I mean, not all, you know, a lot of the fantasy work, you know, you can, right. you feel it's fantasy, but, you know, so- but your specialty is and or was environments, right? I mean, that's it, it always it always was. And um, as time went on, I pushed my work more towards conceptual work, like concept paintings uh, instead of map paintings, right? right. So mm -hmm. it, it, that was the work that I ended up doing with Doug. But when I when I started with interacting with Doug, I was doing map paintings that I loved. Oh, I see. Okay. So, but it led to this role of doing. Uh, concept paintings, you know, environment. And, and, and did you ever imagine that um, you would be working on movies like, you know, Blade Runner 2049 or Star Wars or Matrix or, I mean, you, you've worked I, on you know, iconic. Oddly, oddly I did. I you was, did? Um, I was really driven when I, when I wanted to be a map painter, I was just thought I'm going to work on the next Star Wars movie. <gasps> and this is in, this is in college. Wow. And I, and I had this um, kind of, nervous drive like you know i can't fail because i you know i had good parents and they always supported me there's no reason someone's got to do it right so there's no reason i can't do it and i just had that ambition at that age so what you're saying is if you have good parents people don't fail i think i think people you know <laughs> i'm teasing happens. i'm teasing you i'm teasing i know you, you are but i'm gonna answer it. <laughs> anyway I'm, go ahead failure is part of it right like you have your ups and your downs yeah. for sure, but you have these, you know, you have these moments where you succeed, you know, just to be followed by a failure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I do actually love that because, you know, I had, I had great parents, but my dad talked about failure and that failure was such a big part of life and encouraged failure because it would open a door for something unexpected. And, um, and, and, and that, and that, license to make mistakes was um, fundamental to me deciding to try and write a book as you yeah. made a fundamental choice to, you know, go into matte painting. Um, you know, uh, you need, you need that support. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I think that's one of the most moving things a parent can do is this, 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 you know, unbridled support that, you know, we are there with you. Um, yeah. So I, I, so I get that for sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I mean, yeah, I wasn't always a good map painter. In other words, to become, I always tell, uh, tell aspiring artists, you know, it's like, you have to be willing to be bad at something 
in order to ultimately be good. Yeah, you got to write a lot of bad sentences, a lot of bad paragraphs, a lot of bad <laughs> chapters, and a lot of bad manuscripts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really true. So, because you know, I think um, you know, listeners, um, you know, like to get the inside uh, view sometimes of mm -hmm. artists' work on projects. Can we just go through a few of the projects that, you know, like I'm not familiar with what you would have done on Blade Runner 2049, but it's such a beautiful movie. Um, it's just stunning. I'm just curious, you know, what they brought you in on that movie for. Yeah, there was, um, so there was this, I was, well, I was sort of the company art director, um, and so I would be in dailies making comments and just making lighting suggestions and stuff. And then more specifically, um, we also brought in a concept artist named Mark Cabana, who's an amazing designer mm. drawer. Mm -hmm. And we have worked together off and on, you know, with Doug in the past. And that's where I met Mark. Um, and he was working up at uh, Lucasfilm when I was working at ILM. So I was sort of working on his designs um, like for like the Gunga scene in Star Wars, for example, he had drawn it and then I ended up re-envisioning it as a real thing. Um, so on, on Blade Runner, um, we had the primary area we worked on was outside of BB's Bar, which is sort of an adult uh, exterior scene. Um, and I've forgotten the main character's name, not Deckard, but the Ryan Gosling character meets a woman there. And um, uh, it's, you know, adult theme. There's like um, adult vending machines and we had to design those mm. and it was all shot on stage. And so we had to envision uh, an expansive um, environment around this set. Uh, so it was uh, coming up with, you know, high rise skyscrapers and signage and this very uh, atmospheric scene um, and then we did multiple views in that environment. So it was sort of a combination for me of, uh, I didn't do any specific matte painting, but as the company would would build, kind of build the virtual set, then I would take that and do a painting on top and then hand it back to them. And then they would take it further. We would kind of go back and forth. So I was really like a visual effects art director in that regard. So I didn't, I didn't do anything. I, that was actually physically in the film, but I did a lot of designs or I think this is how we should light the scene or this is how we should make this scene look, you know? It's so interesting because I don't think people realize how much of a collaboration there is, you know, between the art director and the, and the cinematographer and the director um, uh, to come up with that look and feel. I'm, I'm curious because um, I worked with Rupert Sanders we were developing, uh, he's a director that you would have worked mm -hmm. with on Ghost in the Shell, right? Um, so we, uh, he was such a visualist. Um, I loved his mind. Um, we uh, were working on a similar project to Ghost in the Shell, which never happened at Warner Brothers. And so he, okay. le he left to go do Ghost in the Shell, which I, I swear some of the concepts that were in our movie made it into his movie. Um, but, yeah. uh, I really, I really appreciate that, that, uh, his talent. So I'm curious, um, because that was big, you know, again, a big sci-fi, um, project. Um, did you do something similar on that film or? It, it was sort of similar. I think, um, 
I think that came through our company pretty quickly. I, I want to say we were on it for about six weeks. Like mm. I remember, I think there was another, I forget which studio had it. And then we did some work to help them out kind of thing. But I worked primarily on the scene where they're out, uh, Scarlett Johansson and another character are on a boat out in the water. Okay. And the cityscape is behind them. Okay. So it was sort of the same kind of capacity though, coming up with, how tall are the buildings and like, what is the, you know, the th- what are the 3d signage? What are they, what are they doing and what's the composition? Right. Right. Um, so similar thing. And then that would get passed back. Like the director would say, yep, that's it. And then the company would kind of make it, you know, or, or duplicate it. So um, since this is an all things Alice podcast, um, I do want to ask you about um, the uh, my Alice and Wonderland world and what you recall um i i recall one of the first concepts you did might have been the pool of tears um but you had alice with a uh rabbit um in a in a like a little almost like a teacup um and uh and, and we morphed from that um to the uh to the pool of tears i can't remember the order because you did like the yeah I, one thing that you worked really hard on that you nailed was the valley of mushrooms right um, and then I, was that the one that became a book cover or i think maybe we did a couple times we did a few iterations of yeah that that became the british uh book cover yeah uh, the soft it was like a soft cover book the, right? the paperback yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah. And, really i mean i have this thing about mushrooms like i just love I don't know why, but uh, for some reason they're just magical and interesting and otherworldly. Well, you know? they're very popular these days. So yeah. <laughs> magic mushrooms. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you did a lot of interesting um, concepts, mushroom concepts, before we landed on the sort of the, the bigger, um, larger version um, of the top so that yeah. – um, so um, uh, Alice and Dodge could be escaping. Uh, uh, I think that's one of them. And it was more, it was a horizontal image. Mm-hmm. And then you did a vertical image later, which really showed the scope of, um, of the Valley of Mushrooms. And, uh, oh, right. yeah. and, and that was, um, and you, and, and you really, you just nailed the, uh, the lighting. So because you're into mushrooms, did you have a, did you go into nature to, come up with you know the I, I, I did um i did a bit you know i tend to look at a lot of reference like i'll you know look at national geographic and nowadays you'd search online to find imagery you know but i also like to just get the camera and go out and just take pictures oh okay to be inspired and um and then i think i may have also sculpted some stuff and lit them and photographed them just to get lighting ideas for the valley of mushrooms yeah just some simple shapes so you know i used to do that a lot as well and now you would do it in 3d and light it you know in a game engine or in a 3d package um but back then yeah but back then i would often do those types of things you know photograph something or try and find something in nature. I didn't realize that you did um, sculptures for those uh, environments. I, I do obviously vividly remember the Bibwit Hart uh, character and 
I'm guessing, but it seemed like there was 50 variants on your sculptures. And I said, are you sure that you want to do these sculptures? And, you know, because it seemed like it was really time consuming. And he goes, no, Mm -hmm. I I want to do it. This is my process. Um, But I think you wanted to do it because we had done almost exclusively environment and you st- you were itching to do some. I think I might have said, "What are you interested in doing?" Because I'd like to do some characters. Yeah, and and yeah, we'll- yeah, yeah. And um, for me, it was a, a good way to feel out the shape um, and to come up with uh, something that I felt you know that character was you know. And I think um, I think I gave him the ears to tie him in with the, a rabbit character, but I can't remember. Yes. Him. Yeah. he's supposed to in the story or not, but that's what I was sort of, you know, imagining. And so I was like, well, you know, he's got to look intelligent. He's got to look, uh, I, I thought of him as kind of like a Leonardo da Vinci character in a way. Okay. You know? Okay. And sort of so somewhere between an artist and a, um, philosopher. And, and so, yeah, it was great. It was really fun, you know? And I, um, it's funny. I look back at that piece and, and um, even though it's not exactly what I would do now, I still like, you know, I still like what I came up with at the time. And I think for me, sculpting was a way, an easier way for me to find the, the, the character. Well, I, um, for our listeners, I'm going to include some images of the sculptures uh, in the, on the blog. Um, I'll do a like, little interview uh, version of this and uh, so I can share a lot of the artwork that we're talking about so people will be able to see it because we did start with Bibwit and you, the description you just described um, you know, was what you started with. And it ended up, the first image that you did was like a very, um, pres- uh, like a professor. It was this beautiful image um, but he didn't have those large ears, and because it um, Bibwit was an anagram of White Rabbit, and um, the way that Alice would have described Bibwit to Lewis Carroll is why he changed it to White Rabbit. So, mm. so he had really big ears because he had remarkable hearing, and uh, and I remember sort of making that note. Um, and oh, I, it, I remember the first drawing. Now that you mentioned it, I remember the first one with the beard, and yeah. he, he does have pretty big ears, he, the human ears, human yeah. ears, and yeah. um, and I. It turned out that I loved that image, and I think I might have used that as Alice's um, dad, King Nolan, mm-hmm. because he, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was very regal, mm-hmm. um, but he wasn't uh, a different species, and so that's when you. You uh, you jumped into the uh, you jumped into the uh, the sculpture, and I was really nervous because I'm like, well, wait, this is going to take a long time. So, like, you know, you were working, for, you had a full time job, and you seemed like I think you were working weekends. And I used to say, yeah. yeah, I have people who work on weekends, and they have sugar daddy jobs, and um, and so I do the best I can, and I take what I can get. But um, yeah. that turned out great, and uh, I love. And then the way that remember the last thing you put was the globe, um, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, it was sort yeah, of. Yeah, I, I forget if he's got his hand on it or something, but I think that's it was pretty much right out of a Vermeer painting. The same, oh, you know, oh. you know, Vermeer always has. Uh-huh. It just it looks like something that that character would have, right? Yeah. And um, and and then you know, 
there's certain images that are in every presentation and every meeting or every school event because they're part of the the mythology. So, you know, the pool of tears, you know, sets the motion, sets the story in motion when our heroes are separated. So I'm constantly showing that. The Valley of Mushrooms just speaks to people that know Alice in Wonderland. It's iconic and it's just a twist, which you did beautifully. Um, the everlasting forest was something you know invented, um, and I wanted the, that to be very vivid and as if it was from the rainforest, so that the the colors were all popping, and our heroes have to transverse through there. And that I think is my favorite image that you did for me. It was um, so spectacular. Uh, I really want people to see it because you'll see our heroes. Um, but it really does feel like a real place. Um, yeah, it's funny. Um, it's funny too because I feel like even when I look at that piece now, I really like it, and it's in, it's uh, indicative of something I would do now. Like I wouldn't redo it. Like I think it's just fine. And I went through a big transition of like when I had come out when I came out of ILM and was at the orphanage. I really wanted to do concept art, but I was still a map painter. Mm-hmm. In a way, like my skill set was erasing all signs of of illustration, right? And so matte paintings are supposed to look real. So it took a long time to get a feel of uh, a feel for creating images that had an illustrated look, but were, yet were still realistic and interesting. And I feel like you know that that piece was sort of one from around that era where, and it was probably later when we were we were working maybe like 2008, like you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I really was beginning to really get that look, you know, like I'm like, Oh, nice. It looks like an illustration, but it still has some realism, but it's magical as well. Well, I saw an image that you did for Beowulf that reminded me of that image, which had an iridescent um, colors. It was the Grendel's cave is that, is oh, that yeah. right? Yeah. Right. That, yep. that that image is very similar to um, to the everlasting forest. That you know, v- a vivid world with iridescent you know colors coming out. Um, that was a that was a great. How was that movie to work on? That was fantastic. Really, yeah, I, I loved it. I loved that whole time period. Tell so, us why. What was what was it like uh, to collaborate? Well, you know, it was. Um, so I was working with, with uh, Doug Chang, and he had started Ice Blink Studios, which eventually turned into Image Movers Digital. And it was just a team of the best artists uh, in each category. You know, there was uh, Dermot Power was uh, was there. He was a great character designer. Um, uh, Kurt Kaufman was a good uh, designer as well, just of... Uh, hardware and and Mark Cabana was there. So I was exposed to just a a wonderful art department. It was, uh, you know, it was one of my favorite periods of my career. It was, I got to paint all day and just worked, worked on becoming better and was just given assignments and it was just perfect, you know, and there were experts in every category. So if I was like, God, how do I solve this problem? You know, everyone is very sharing and, and it was like a great place to learn uh, because of that environment. And I felt Doug was a really good leader. So it was uh, it was a sweet spot. And the industry changed. And 
And I haven't experienced anything that quite that fun since. Like, that was just such a sweet spot, you know. And, you know, since then, um, like managing teams and being an art director, you know, I I do enjoy it. But I think it was sort of a luxury just to be put a learning hat on and um, just be passionate about painting. Let me ask you, when you collaborate, um, what are the things that are the most helpful? So if you're coming up with something, you know, for instance, if we're talking about something from my book, was it the reading of the material? Is it the conversations about the kind of the look and the feel that, because I know that whenever I spoke with you, I never felt like I had the quite the right language. I was really trying to find the language to describe it. And often I would say, well, it's in the book, but it could be this or that. But y- you would bring, you know, your own take to it, which is what I always wanted. I said, look, at, I want you to do your thing. So how do you translate what's on the page, what somebody's saying, what an art director, what a director's saying to trusting the process. I, I think there was something I learned um, maybe when I was at Matt World uh, at the beginning of my career, about year two and a half. And I suddenly realized I kept trying to copy all these other Matt painters, right? And and um, and then it, it sort of dawned on me, oh, wait a second. I just need to make something that I think is beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And um it was a big, uh, it was a big discovery because once I realized that, realized it was uh, sort of finding my vision, um, my work just improved immensely. And I think some of that's about confidence. I just realized it was kind of like a treasure hunt for me to find something that that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And so I would just, and then the second part of that is just exposing yourself to reference, like looking and looking and looking and looking until you find something evocative and it might be a completely different subject matter, but it, it'll, it'll, there'll be a clue as to the success of this image you're going to make, you know? Well, I, I bring it up because, um, a lot of the images that we've talked about already that you and I worked on, uh, they, they came out fully formed almost, um, you know, there was some lighting and color choices. And I remember in the chessboard desert, we added red's lair, um, in the background. But one of the things that we worked on was the whispering woods. And you did a lot of, um, you did a lot of concepts and it was really interesting, but it was at the bottom of, of the tree. And there were these huge, this huge trunk with, with, um, you know, with big roots and, and, oh, and, right. and, yeah. and I was like, well, I don't know. I, I kept, I, 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 I thought it was more from the top down that would create a canopy. So that our heroes be running and then the, the top branches would come down and then whisper, uh, whisper. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, that, and, and that's basically all I had. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and we never quite, I never quite finished that piece either. Right. Well, we yeah. have a version that's pretty good yeah. that I yeah. that I did use, but didn't pop in the same way. Uh, we also did one about the iron butterfly, which was a, a concept that I can't even remember if it made it into the book. 
Um, but, um, you know, we have partial and I, and I used it occasionally. Um, but, uh, you know, some of those were, some of those were, uh, not finished and, and I was just having such a good time working with you. I could have had the whole thing done. I just couldn't afford to do the whole thing, but that was, it was, and it was, it was really fun back then. Uh, just, you know, just to doodle and kind of make little sketches and and come up with ideas and stuff. So do you, um, I saw online that you teach a class, a a master class in, uh, or you might have at some point for uh, map painting. That was one presentation and, um, and it was more like uh, uh, explaining, um, explaining my whole career and my influences as a kid. Oh, okay. I I sort of started with, uh, you know, riding bikes and being imaginative as a a kid and dreaming and all this kind of stuff and took that all the way through my career with images and stuff. And so it was sort of a, it was a talk like that. I showed all my work and it was really fun, but I I have yet to do a class, you know, sort of a how to type. Okay. Okay. Yeah, maybe one day. Well, I mean, two things that you brought up. One, um, you know, the the joy of creating and and then turning that creativity into a job. That's pretty amazing. And then, you know, how does somebody else figure all that out if they're as ambitious um, and uh, and have good parents as you do? <laughs> And and want to work in the movie business. I'm not sure anybody should be working in the movie business right now. It's, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard, tricky. You know, I would just say um, it's hard to know also where where things lead because you could start by thinking that's where you're going to go, but everything is changing so quickly now that it's it's hard to say what entertainment's going to be. Right? So, yeah, yeah. And so many of the artists that I know um, who I worked with, they would do work for magic of the gathering because they needed, they needed concepts constantly to, to the thing's been going on for decades. And, um, and so that, that was a place for people to learn, uh, presumably, uh, not that they have a lot of great artists, but they get paid to do that. So have you ever done anything for magic at the gathering? Out of I have, yeah, but I've had a lot of friends that have, you know, do a couple cards here or there. So let's talk about, um, Alice in Wonderland, and uh, I usually ask folks their their you know their first introduction to um, to Alice in Wonderland. And I was I was curious mm-hmm. if what yours uh, what your introduction, and if there are any of the artists who have worked on books or the art itself, or the sh- or the or the book or the movies work their way into influences and in any of the yeah, work that you've yeah, done. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the original one was uh, just the Disney movie. And I think I saw that at the Sequoia Theater in Mill Valley when I was, oh, I don't know how old, but I must wow. have been between four and seven. Wow. Know, somewhere in the time period. And they probably had a showing. Um, and so that was my first memory First memory of it. In a and movie then, uh, theater. That's very unusual. In a theater, but I think yeah. it was like they showed it for a weekend yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Br- Bringing know. it back. Oh, cool. And, yeah, it's like, and I, I just remember, you know, something about just the otherworldliness of it, like her falling inside the hole mm-hmm. and the, you know, all the objects. And um, it was just very magical, you know, like I just love that. Um, 
I love that that feeling. And then um, I did much, much, much later. I found this book, um, which is amazing. Um, and this was by a Disney artist, um, and, but they didn't. I don't believe they used this particular person's work. What's the, the we? I, it was hard to see the David uh, Hall. David Hall. Okay. Okay. And yeah. it's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and it's an illustrated. David Hall did the illustrations. Yes, okay. but I think this is all developed for developed for Disney. In other words, he did some right. of these illustrations for one of the Disney films, um, and they're just they're just amazing, you know, amazing sketches. Okay, um, I don't beautiful. I don't know those. Wow. Yeah, and I think it's the best stuff I've seen. It's like the best Alice in Wonderland imagery that I've seen for me. Like the the pictures just really. Um, and I look at them just because they're these great storytelling frames. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So I, when I want to get inspired, sometimes I'll pull this book out and I'll just like look through it to kind of, you know, get some ideas. Well, we'll definitely want to share some of those ideas, uh, so some of those images, um, because um, you know I'm I, I I love seeing all the different artists that have used Alice and did interpretations of Alice. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And and then another really influential movie was um, uh, Dream Child. Oh right, Dream Child. Yeah, and I love that movie. And I, I saw it. I was it was I think I was a junior or senior in high school, and it had Jim Henson's puppets. But you know it was about Alice Little uh, celebrating being invited by Princeton to celebrate the 100 year anniversary of Lewis Carroll's birthday. Yeah, and it's, it's intermixed with her being kind of haunted by their relationship. And yeah, the story, um, the story, because I know that movie pretty well. The story is um, Alice Little, who was the muse for Lewis Carroll, supposedly. Yeah. Um, when she got married um, to, uh, to um, a man, Mr. Hargraves, I forget his first name. And so when she was Alice Hargraves and when she was 80, she was invited to the U.S. and she took a ship over to give a speech. Um, and they, in the movie, she was going to America to give a speech to celebrate Lewis Carroll. Um, and there was a young girl with her. And so then there were these flashbacks um, about her time with Lewis Carroll. And the flashbacks were all uh, about his book. And there were puppets, um, you know, like the Mock Turtle. And, um, and they were all puppets. And so it was very interesting and weird. Um, yeah. and, and, and it was an exploration of, his, of her relationship with Lewis Carroll because of the suggested um, sexual... Um, you know, undertones yeah. uh, of the relationship, yeah. right? I mean, that's... Yeah, that was certainly part of it, uh, you know, sort of the inappropriate nature of it and her her trying to grapple with what was, what was positive in that and maybe what was negative and how to kind of process it. She was kind of haunted with that. Yeah. And then also she was haunted in the story. She was haunted by her own age. So the characters would appear telling her that she's old. And right. The, the, um, the character is from Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I just found that very interesting. And I, I tend to like movies that are like this, where they kind of use fantasy to, to work on some pretty serious issues. Like it's fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, people should check it out. It's uh, I think it was in 1985, and um, and there's a very funny. I don't know if you know this. There's a there's a connection between that movie, George Lucas, and Star Wars. Do you know what Rick it is? McCallum. What Rick, Mc, Rick McCallum was the producer. He was the producer, yeah. and he met George Lucas on that production. Oh, I didn't know that. And George Lucas asked him to produce the young Indiana Jones series, which was really successful. And then he asked him to do Star Wars, and then he became the head of production for Lucasfilms. So I find that small world that this is an influence of yours. And, you know, you ended up working with, did you, you must have known and worked with him with Rick because. A bit, a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a pleasure. Yeah, so. yeah, and that I think that that movie went on and, and won three BAFTA awards or or something like that. So yeah, and what I really loved about it uh, was the mood in the scenes. Uh, you know, the uh, I'm in the, the mock turtle scene in the beginning. It's like the opening of the movie, and it's just very mysterious, and the lighting was very moody, and it's right up my alley, and it 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 really feels like a dream. Um, yeah, and it and it gets that to your point. It's established in that opening scene. Yes, um, and uh, you know Jim Henson's um, Creature Shop did a great job with the uh, with the makeup and the creature effects, and 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 all of the puppets were based on Tennille's artwork. So the original artist, uh, which I did not know. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm really curious to see the book that you were, that you, the Disney book, because I'm a huge um, Ralph Steadman fan. Um, and I, I also, I, I also love Salvador Dali's, um, I mean, crazy uh, psychedelic version of um, Alice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, um, there's, a Barry Moser. Now Barry Moser did something I think in the seventies and, um, and just in terms of what's trending these days, he is an ex- in an exhibit in, uh, in France on, you know, all things Alice. So any book illustrators or paintings or map paintings and stuff. And he's, he's one of the only Americans that's included in this um, this exhibit that's going on um, right now, um, so you know it. Now it's been a hundred and fifty odd plus years. It doesn't stop. It just keeps Alice just keeps right on rolling along. So yeah, I mean, there's something about that um, about the dreamy quality that that one story, this one story really captures, right? Like. Um, and I, I was thinking about that. I was thinking um, um, just about how um, with, with dreams, in hindsight, a dream is every bit as real as what you did yesterday, right? If you have a dream and you wake up the next day. Absolutely. They're as real as each other. Um, and I, so I just think that that whole, that whole part of our experience, like, formulating ideas while we're asleep. And I just think it's like really important in the, in the way that you, um, the way that you connect the dots between different parts of your lives and imagination. I had a lot of experiences with that when I was writing my books, especially the first book, because 
I, I, I had so much anxiety, uh, which is why I, I couldn't tell anybody that I was writing the book because I, I just didn't want people asking me questions. Um, but the anxiety would come out in my dreams and either I was solving a problem, like a story problem that I had written myself into a corner, or I was having, you know, nightmare, you know, terrors, um, you know, these terrible dreams because (laughs) it was going to be so terrible, this, this, this book. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I really, I, I really experienced that firsthand in the writing of the first book. I, I've had very similar experiences. Like I think being creative is a little, uh, you're, you're confronted by your fears a lot, right? Right. And you push through it and, and try and make something. But, um, I remember this specifically. I was, uh, I was at Mad World. I was maybe mad painting for a year and it was so hard and I was doing such a bad job initially. Like it was just torture because I wanted to be like one of the best and I was just, I just wasn't anywhere close. Like I was having the hardest time. And my, you know, my boss, Pengrazio, would tell me to paint like him and it wasn't working. And like, I just couldn't, I couldn't lock on to a process. And um, so there was this one painting for Dracula and it just was a, an abomination. Like it was supposed to be the castle, you know? And I just, and I was reading all these self-help books. There's a book called, the, you know, The Road Less Traveled. Yes. You know, oh, my God. I read to him, like, and I love that book, actually. And in it, uh, he talks about grace, right? Grace. About, oh, yeah. About praying for grace. And I literally was just like, please, somebody help me figure out how to make, how to turn this around, you know? And then in the middle of the night, I just had a flash of an image and I woke up and I got it. I'm like, that's it. I yeah. got it. Yeah. And it was remembering something I had shot when I was at UC Santa Cruz. It was a picture and it just flashed in my head. And it, it had became like, it became a great painting. And then everything else I did in the film ended up being really good. But, but it went through, it was a turning point because it went through this phase of like, just, I was just failing, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, that, that, that snapping of the fingers, if only that happened more often. <laughs> yeah, but I think there is something about what you're saying about how when you're asleep and you're processing and you're, yeah. you're going through your card catalog of like yeah. everything, yeah. you know, trying to figure it out. Yeah, and it's really, you know, it's it's really satisfying um, when you wake up and you know exactly what to do. And if you have a night terror and, you know, you have to take the day off. <laughs> And, you know, get that confidence back. I always like to go um, finish something that I knew what it was going to be so that I could start the morning very productive and not have to stare at um, the blank page. So uh, that was a trick that I would use. And often, to your point about I I needed that inspiration to solve mostly concept ideas, you know, like logic and Um, because you know you're creating a whole world, and like, w- why does this make sense? And y- you can't, you know, no one's going to suspend disbelief with that terrible idea. So, I, 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 yeah. I, like you were describing earlier about some of the artwork that you feel you would do this, you know, that you really you think is is great right now, and you wouldn't change it, like the everlasting forest. And then there's others that you want to change, and so and same thing with writing. Right. It's like, wow, that whole chapter. That idea was so stupid. I wish I could go back because I've changed it for the movie version. The movie version is better um, idea. It makes more sense. 
in terms of what I was what I was working on. So, well, tell me about um, the gig you have right now and what you're excited about because um, you work at uh, Evil Eye Pictures. Is that still is that where you're at? Yeah, right? yeah, still doing that. And um, yeah, I've got a team of artists, um, small team, and we sort of build out the environments uh, for. Um, it's working in the Unreal game engine. Mm. Um, we do cinematics for Fortnite. So, oh, oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm really doing right now is um, using this time as a time to learn how to work in the the engine because um, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. a great it's a great way to work. Um, and um, yeah, it's been great fun to collaborate with those guys. So one of the questions I ask I like to ask guests is if you were a character from Alice in Wonderland, uh, who would you be and why? Yeah, so I thought about that just this morning, and I think I think I would say Alice, and specifically because um, because of her arc going to England and having that be a, an extremely good representation of the artistic struggle. Right. Right. Yeah. You have the magic, and then do you have the magic? And, and then, then you you, you lose it, right? You lose it, and you get it back. So that's, um, that's my Alice because, um, that's what happened in my stories in Mm -hmm. the, uh, original stories. If you were, you know, watching dream child or something, uh, do you have a version from Lewis Carroll's that, uh, comes to mind? Yeah, probably none where I identify with any of the characters, Mm. you know, um, but I would I would say again because she's sort of passing through the story and experiencing all the dreaming and all mm-hmm. these different. I still feel mostly like that character. I mean, I had you know I I'd like to fancy myself as a bibwit, you know, like I think mm-hmm. okay, you know, he's interesting character or the caterpillar is interesting because they're sort of um, uh, mystical and have vast knowledge, and I think that's really intriguing. Right. Um, like there's different things I like about all these characters. Um, so, um, but I still really identify with kind of, you know, every day and every night I literally try and, you know, dream and try to have like an, an experience as I'm falling, as I'm falling asleep, I'm kind of like, here it goes. Like my brain's starting to do that thing. Like you start seeing little things and, you know, the little stories start to come out of it. Right. Right. And so I'm, I'm fascinated with that whole, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more fascinated by that. Well, no wonder um, you like Dream Child um, so much. And, um, you know, I I do think you can cultivate uh, a stronger dream um, experience by, you know, setting intention on I want to I want to dream and I want to remember my dreams. And I really I want to go in this place and I want to or, you know, as long as you set an intention, uh, I, I find that can be. Helpful, especially if you're right in the middle of something creative, not something filled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like the pandemic, <laughs> my dreams yeah. did not work out on the creative side during some of the crazy. Hard, pandem- to, be, hard to be creative. Yeah. yeah. You're, so you're stressed about stuff like that. I've really appreciated uh, uh, chatting and revisiting um, your art that I've been living with every day since you created it. And uh, so to be able to touch base and, and talk on this podcast uh, has been really uh, meaningful. So 
Thank you, uh, Brian, for uh, sharing your insight and and your experience. I think people are going to enjoy listening. Hmm. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really, it's really nice to catch up. Hey, I, I, I just love your work. Just absolutely loved our collaboration, and um, and it was a pleasure to chat. Enjoy the rest of your um, your Sunday. Thanks for taking time to chat with us and sharing your experiences. So, hmm. thanks, Frank. It's great to see you. Nice talking to you. Thanks, Brian. Take care.